0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the blessings with which you have blessed us. We thank you especially this morning, Lord, for the blessing of your word that never returns to you void, but that always accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. Father, I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through your word in our hearts this morning as we open this book as we open these scriptures Lord I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive from your spirit all that you have for us glorify yourself in this place and in our lives in Jesus name we pray amen open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study in this wonderful epistle we are as uh, I have said previously Continuing our study in chapter 6, and though our text this morning is in verse 14, for the sake of context, I'll begin in verse 10, in which Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And of course it goes on, but our text today is putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, first of all, I want to begin by talking about this, this idea of a breastplate, right? Right? The breastplate is that largest portion of the armor that is actually worn rather than carried by the soldier. And it is the, the garb or the, the uniform, if you will, the, 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 the key piece of armor that that soldier wears. And, and it would cover from around the collarbone down to below the waist area here, both front and, and some would say in some portions of the back. And that breastplate was to protect the vital organs of the soldier. Things that were covered by the breastplate would be the heart, the lungs, the, the intestine, or, or the bowels of the soldier. We think of the heart as being the seat of the emotions, don't we? But, but in ancient times, it was really the gut or the bowels that were considered... the the seat of the emotions. And and in a lot of ways I think physically we can identify with that, can't we? Because when you're when you're stressed out or when you're scared or when you're upset, where do you feel that generally? In your stomach, right? Oh man, I got butterflies in my stomach. Why? Because I'm nervous. Oh well my stomach is really upset. Why? Because well because I'm angry or because I'm frustrated or because you know we say, yeah, I've just got this terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach, right? So we really do recognize that. In many ways, the, the gut is the seat of the emotions. And so this breastplate that we wear, this breastplate of righteousness is intended to protect our emotions, to protect our hearts from the attacks of the enemy and rest assured the enemy stands ready to attack. Now, what is the nature of The enemy's attack. Well, we've talked about the wiles of the devil. We've talked about the the trickery and the cunning that he exercises as he tempts us, as he seeks out footholds that can then become strongholds. We've talked about the fiery darts of the enemy, and we'll be talking about those more, the attacks that he brings against us, and the way in which he attempts to deceive us. But one of the things we need to remember is that the enemy's favorite form of attack is through accusation, right? Through condemnation. If you think about it, the devil is a dirty, low-down, double-crossing, no good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Well, what does he do? He, he, he first tempts us to sin and entices us to sin, And then when we do sin, he condemns us for having sinned, doesn't he? So he's both the one who tempts you and the one who ridicules you once you have succumbed to that temptation. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12 briefly. In Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 10, John writes these words. He says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He accused Job. If you look in the first chapters of the book of Job, I'm not going to ask you to turn there now, but Satan was there in the presence of God, and, and the Lord said to him, he says, hey, what have you been up to? And he's like, well, I've been going to and fro around on the earth, you know? And, and, and the New Testament tells us also that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, You know, roaring lions don't typically roar when they're hunting. They roar because they're marking their territory, right? So Satan is all about marking his territory. And if he happens to find you vulnerable within that territory, then he is going to do his utmost to devour you. And Satan was there before the Lord, and the Lord says, well, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he's... he's, he's a great guy, and Satan's like, well, you say he's a great guy, but the only reason you say he's a great guy is because, you know, you've, you've got him protected. You've got this hedge of protection around him, right? I mean, you know, you, you let me touch his possessions, and you let me make him sick, and you let me do all these things, he'll curse you to your face. Well, how did Satan know that the Lord was protecting Job? There's only one way to figure that out, right? He had tried to attack him previously. He found it wasn't doing any good because Job was protected. But you see, Satan's desire is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he is constantly making accusations against the believer. And this breastplate of righteousness that we as believers are to wear is a defense against the accusations of the enemy. That's why we are to take it up. But you see, when it comes to this breastplate of righteousness that we are to wear as a defense against the accusations of the enemy, we have a problem or two. Righteousness is something that, in terms of human ability, is in pretty short supply. And the Lord acknowledges this. He says so himself. Turn with me to Isaiah, if you will, the book of Isaiah. And we're going to find in chapter 59 that Paul was not the first one to refer to this breastplate of righteousness. This armor that the Lord is speaking of through the Apostle Paul has been around for a long time. And the first one to wear it, we see, was none other than the Lord himself. In Isaiah chapter 59, and I'm going to read somewhat extensively from this passage today, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God." And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. So he begins by saying, Yes, Israel, you've got some trouble brewing here. You're in trouble. There are a lot of things going wrong, and you've called out to God, and it seems as though he cannot hear you, and it seems as though he cannot save you, but the fact of the matter is he can hear, and he can save, but before we come to him for help, there's something else that has to be dealt with. You see, before we can go to God and say, hey, Lord, could you help me out with this or could you help me out with that, the Lord's response is, well, yeah, I could, but you see, there's this other issue that has to be dealt with first. It's the issue of your sin because it is far more important. Dealing with our sin is far more important than dealing with our own safety. Dealing with our sin is far more important than dealing with our own sustenance. In other words, before I can ask God to protect me, and before I can ask God to provide for me, I first have to acknowledge that he paid the price for me. In other words, before I can count on him for protection, before I can count on him for provision, I have to turn to him for salvation. Amen? And so Isaiah is saying, listen, the arm of the Lord is not short that it cannot save, nor is his ear such that it cannot hear but it's your sins that have separated you from him. So those sins, those iniquities, that guilt that we all have must be dealt with if we expect the Lord to move on our behalf. Isaiah goes on in verse 4 to say, No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments nor will they cover themselves with their works. You see, we so often as human beings think that if we just do enough good, if we just act right enough, if we behave ourselves in an appropriate way, you see, so often we as believers even define righteousness by the things we don't do. Well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't watch those kind of movies, and I don't go to these kind of places, so that must mean I'm righteous, But you see, righteousness isn't just about what you don't do. It is far more concerned with what you actually do. What is it that the righteous would have done? They would have called for justice. They would have pleaded for truth. But instead, he says, no one's doing those things. We as believers should stand for justice. We as believers should stand for truth. And when we refuse to take a stand for justice, when we refuse to take a, take a stand for what is true, then we are behaving through our lack of action in an unrighteous manner. He goes on to say in verse 6 Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the acts of violence, the act of violence, is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace what's more, we know from Romans that not only have we made crooked paths, but those who walk on those paths are approved and encouraged and told that they're actually right. And those who stand for truth are accused of hate speech or bigotry or any number of things. Isaiah goes on in verse 9 to say, therefore justice is far from us. "'Nor does righteousness overtake us. "'We look for lights, but there is darkness. "'For brightness, but we walk in blackness. "'We grope for the wall like the blind, "'and we grope as if we had no eyes. "'We stumble at noonday as at twilight. "'We are as dead men in desolate places. "'We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. "'We look for justice, but there is none, "'and for salvation But it is far from us, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. You see, I don't have to tell you about your sin, do I? I don't have to to make a list of sinful behaviors and, and go through that list in the hopes that I will inadvertently touch on something that you've done, thought, or felt. See, I don't have to do that because you know what? You know what you have done wrong. You know the sin that dwells within your own heart. You know your own iniquity. And we are all guilty before God. The Bible tells us in Romans that there is none righteous. Not even one. Isaiah goes on here in verse 13 and he says, In transgression and lying against the Lord and departing from our God. These are the iniquities that we are guilty of. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Is there anybody among us who has not done that? Conceiving in our heart and uttering falsehoods? You know, we we have these convenient lies that we like to tell that get us out of difficult situations, right? Things that other people will certainly excuse. We call them little white lies. but they're dishonest and they're unrighteous. Justice, he says in verse 14, is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for the truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. He who departs from evil makes Himself a prey, those of you who were at the pastor 's conference, a um, couple of you were there. Uh, there was one session that we were m- meeting in, and one of the speakers shared a story about when he was you know when he was uh, going to school and and uh, maybe i 'm remembering it from somewhere else wow that 's sad i can 't remember where I t- got this story from. I think it was from the conference. I can't even remember which pastor I heard tell this story. So this is a random story from a random person, but it really fits here, so I'm going to use it. Well, there's this guy. He was, he was working at a bus station when he was going through seminary. And, and he's working at this bus station over the night shift. And, and, and when he started working there, he, he realized that they, they had this, uh, maybe this was kingdom men. If so, you guys have heard this story. Yeah, maybe it was. I think it was Tony Evans. Wow. Not in my notes. Sorry. Um, anyway, he's working at this bus station, right? Guys, have you heard this story before? Yeah. No? Okay, good. Alright. So he's working at this bus station, and, and they had this system in place where you'd come on, and you'd work for a couple hours, and then you'd you'd punch out for your break. Right? Your 15-minute break. But instead of taking a 15-minute break, you'd go, and you'd catch a couple hours of sleep but what would happen is is the next guy who was coming on at about the time that your break would have been over would punch you back in so there you would be getting paid while you were sleeping and the thing is everybody who was working that shift was part of this little arrangement that they had well this guy he came on to the job and found out what was going on and he realized that, that he could not do this as a believer. This was wrong. It was not righteous. And he thought, you know, I, I can't, this, it's stealing. So he refused to participate in this little, this little program that they had going on here. Well, time passed and he was ostracized by the other people in the group. He didn't do what they had done, so they felt as though he were sort of self-righteous or holier-than-thou or that, you know, he wasn't with the program. And so things would happen at work where there was a whole bus of luggage to unload and rather than showing up to help him with it, they'd leave him to do it by himself. Why? Because he wasn't a team player. And so he was paying a price for having done what was right. A couple of months went by like this and one day he gets called into the manager's office and uh, he doesn't know what it's about but, you know, he fears that maybe, maybe he's in trouble in some way or shape or form and, and the manager says, listen, I want you to know that we are aware of the arrangement that the employees have on the night shift And we are also aware of the fact that you have not participated in this little program that they have. So from now on, you're the manager of the night shift. And so the Lord honored his effort to do what was right. But there was a period of time that he had to go through, okay? There was a period of time where he had to experience that oppression and that those attacks from his fellow workers. Because they had a plan. They had, they had what they wanted to do. And when someone stands up for righteousness in a world that is filled with wickedness, they are not going to be well received by those who are engaging in the wicked behavior. Amen? So Isaiah says, listen, truth fails and, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, He put on the garment of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood. The Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, he was saying the Redeemer will come to Zion. But when we read it, we can recognize that the Redeemer has come to Zion. Amen? And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. With whom? With those who turn from transgression. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from you. Who is that covenant with? That covenant is with those who turn from transgression. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for your sins, that he died and was buried, and that on the third day God raised him from the dead. If Christ is your king, and the salvation he offer, belo- offered belongs to you, then this promise is yours. Those who have turned from transgression is who he's speaking of here. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit, who is upon you, Isaiah, Isaiah, Now, the Spirit of God was not in Isaiah. The Spirit of God was upon Isaiah. There's a difference. In the Old Testament times, the Spirit of God would come upon those who served him and could also depart from those who disobeyed him or who turned from him. But in the New Testament, under the new covenant, in our experience, the Spirit of God doesn't simply come upon us, but he makes his home within us, and he dwells in us. And so again, he says to Isaiah, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with him, my Spirit, who is upon you, Isaiah, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants. Descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Amen? His spirit is not going to depart from us. His word will not depart from us. We have a righteousness that is not our own, but was provided to us through Jesus Christ. Amen? You want to know more about this? I know I do. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Actually, I'm sorry. Not John chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. My mistake. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, righteousness is the character or quality of being right or just. It is rightness, if you will. And The scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, to all outward appearances, were the most righteous men that there were. They followed the law to the utmost of their ability. They would pay tithes of even their mint and their cumin. So as they've got their mint, right, The little box of mint, they're counting out the leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for God. One, two, three, four, right? I mean, they were meticulous in their observance of the law. And Jesus said that that wasn't good enough. He said that unless your righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you would by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what he was talking about was not a literal legalistic observance of the details of the law, but what he was talking about was inherently obeying the spirit of the law, which was love, truth, and justice. He said to the Pharisees, those things you should have done and not left the others undone. In other words, that external righteousness, that's good and all, that's nice, but it's an internal righteousness, an attitude of the heart that I want to see changed. Well, the disciples clearly must have been floored by this idea that their righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's the deal, there's only one way that that can happen. The only way that we can have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if, is if we have a righteousness that is not of ourselves. A righteousness that we did not appropriate through our own actions or behaviors, but rather a righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the breastplate that protects our hearts against the accusations of the enemy is the recognition that it isn't about me and what I have done or not done, but it's about him and what he has done on my behalf. Turn with me now, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Paul writes, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is is quoting from the Old Testament, primarily from the book of Psalms, to give a description of what mankind has become like, of what the thoughts and intents of our hearts truly are And he goes on in verse 19 to say, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the Jewish people believed that they could be righteous if only they could perfectly keep The perfect law of God. And if anyone could perfectly keep the perfect law of God, then yes, they would be righteous. But there is no way for imperfect people to perfectly keep the perfect law of a perfect God. Why? Because they're imperfect. Because we are imperfect. Our best efforts are tainted by bad intentions, aren't they? Even when we do good, so often we do good because our hope is that others will recognize that we did good and will in turn do good for us. So even the best things we do are motivated by selfish attitudes. And you might say, well, I don't do good so that others will do good to me. I just do good because I like the way it makes me feel. Ah, you like the way it makes you feel. Again, Self-motivation, right? So even the good things we do are so very often tainted by the bad attitudes of our imperfect hearts. And that's only talking about the things we do. What about the things that we don't do? Because the Bible says, for he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There was a BC comic strip that I read a number of years ago. I've used this as an illustration before. You may or may not remember it, but there's this one guy, he's sitting under the tree, and he's talking to another one of the cave guys who's sitting under the tree, and he says, you know, sometimes I just want to ask God why it is that he doesn't do something about all the suffering that's in the world. And the other guy looks at me and says, well, why don't you ask him? And he says, well, I don't ask him because I'm afraid he'll ask me the same question. Right? We have lots of things that we could do that are good that we don't do that are good. So we know that righteousness it doesn't come from fulfilling the law because we can't fulfill the law. So what then is the purpose of the law? Is it Is it wrong? Is the law wrong? Is the law unrighteous? Absolutely not. But through the law comes our awareness of our own unrighteousness. The law of God is a mirror within which we can see a true reflection of ourselves and in which we can recognize that we in and of ourselves do not measure up to the righteous requirements of a holy God. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 goes on to say, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The righteousness of God has been given to you and has come upon you who believe in Jesus Christ. And that belief is a breastplate that will protect our hearts and our emotions from the onslaught of the enemy's accusations. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22 says, through faith in Jesus Christ to all. And on all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, his blood paid the price for my sin. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in forbearance God had passed over the the, the sins that were previously committed, To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So who is the one who has been justified by God? He who has faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter one of, or excuse me, verse one of chapter four says this, what then shall we say? That Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believes God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, David wrote, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Amen? Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him. That belief in God was accounted to him as righteousness. So when the enemy brings accusations against you, when the enemy condemns you, when the enemy tries to throw everything in the kitchen sink at your conscience and tell you what a horrible, rotten, dirty sinner you are, you can say, you know, you're absolutely right. But praise be to God, my sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me. Amen? That is the breastplate of righteousness. A righteousness that is not ours earned through works, but a righteousness that is imputed to us because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Turn with me as we close this morning to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I'm trying to decide where I want to start chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the sake of context, I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, right, this body, right, if it is destroyed... Well, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So, does this idea of a substitutionary righteousness, does this idea that, that my righteousness is not because of my works, but because of faith in Christ, that my righteousness is not dependent upon my obedience to the law, but rather is dependent upon Christ's perfect obedience to the law and his sacrificial death for me. Does that faith exclude my walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which I have been called? Does it mean that I can just praise the Lord and then do whatever I want? Well, Adrian Rogers put it this way. He said, People say that if I'm saved by grace, then does that mean that I can just profess faith in Jesus Christ and then go sin as much as I want to? And he says, well, in a manner of speaking, yes, it does. Because as a believer who is saved by grace in Jesus Christ, I already sin more than I want to. Because if I'm truly born again, I don't want to sin. And so Paul is basically saying the same thing. He says, listen, I make it my aim It is the goal of my life to be pleasing, to be well-pleasing to him. So while my righteousness is not dependent upon my behavior, my behavior is subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not because I want to earn my salvation, but rather because I want to be well-pleasing to the one who saved me. For we must all, verse 10 says, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust our well known in your conscience. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart for if we are beside ourselves it is for God or if we are sound of mind it is for you for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this that if one died for all then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again So as believers, we recognize that it is no longer our lives that we live, but it is his life that is being lived through us. Amen? Therefore, he says, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now that is good news, amen? Old things have passed away. That person you used to be, you are not bound to be any longer. Those things that that old person did when Satan throws them in your face, you can say, you know what, I hear you, but that guy's dead. <laughs> he, he doesn't live here anymore, right? Right? So, who lives here now? The Spirit of God lives here now. And that is that breastplate of righteousness in which we are protected from the attacks of the enemy. Therefore, again, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God. He who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. What we read in Isaiah 59, that's what God was doing. He came down wearing the breastplate of righteousness, wearing the helmet of salvation, clothed with with zeal and fire and passion for the Lord, and he accomplished the work of God that we might be reconciled to him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us, that is to you and I, the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, I'm begging you, he says, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Make peace with God. Because God has made a way for you to be at peace through him, through the blood of Jesus Christ. God didn't send Christ to condemn you for your sins. He sent Christ to pay the price for your sins so that you would no longer be condemned. For he, verse 21, and that he is God, made him who knew no sin, that him is Jesus, For he made him who knew no sin, he was sinless, he was perfect, he had done nothing wrong. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You want to know how to put on the breastplate of righteousness? It is right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. I'm going to read it again. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, when the accuser of the brethren hurls his accusations at you, let them bounce right off that breastplate of the righteousness of Christ because those accusations no longer have a place in your heart. There is therefore, the Bible tells us now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Were you guilty? Yes. Were you sinful? Absolutely. Were you righteous? Absolutely not, and the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to pay the price for all of that, and through faith in him, we have been made the righteousness of God. So when those accusations come against you, you can say to Satan, you know what? The price has already been paid. Back off, amen? And by believing that, we take up the full armor of God are clad in the breastplate of righteousness and are ready not to defend ourselves, but to take the fight to the enemy because there is no weapon that he has formed against us that will prosper. Amen? Glory be to God. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We thank you, Lord God, for the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ that has been given to us by faith in your Son. Lord, we are unrighteous, unholy, unloving, unjust, dishonest, unrighteous. Lord, there is so much wrong with us. But you loved us anyway. When you saw that there was no one who stood for truth, that there was no one who stood for justice, that there was no one who did what was right, it grieved your spirit, and so you sent your son to take care of it. Lord, you have delivered to us Reconciliation with yourself through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we stand like Paul with confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Upon the cross, Thank you for the righteousness that you have imputed to us. Thank you for making him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our faith is in him, our trust is in him, never in ourselves but always in you, Lord. Make us the people that you have called us to be that we might glorify your name and that we might be ambassadors of Christ unto this world that needs him just as desperately as we did. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. Thank you for making us righteous in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.